Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. Throughout the long and complex history of relations with the United States, there came a time when an American invasion was thought to be imminent. In this story, an officer sent from England to defend Newfoundland discovers the ups and downs of life in St. John's and recounts one of the last duels fought there. Here is McCrae in Fish and Fogland. Now the year was 1861 the time late afternoon of a dull December evening. Lieutenant Colonel Robert McRae had finished a hard day cleaning up the garden of his newly acquired villa. Having spent a good part of his life in the outposts of the empire, he now looked forward to a long holiday with his wife, peaceful and safe as the English countryside surrounding him. Not an hour later came a knock, and a letter from a military comrade was delivered to his hand. "'My dear sir,' The colonel has just come from the horse guards, a great deal more shine about the Trent job than we thought. We're all ordered off to Canada, and you are told off for Newfoundland and sail next Saturday on the Liverpool packet. Thought you would like to know. Well, the Trent job, about which there was more shine than they thought, was an incident during the just-commenced American Civil War. Two gentlemen from the southern states were returning to Paris and London, where they represented their government. They succeeded in running the blockade that the northern navy had flung around the southern coast and managed to reach Cuba. Here they boarded the Trent, a British mail steamer bound for England. On her passage home she was stopped by the northerners, boarded and relieved of the company of the two southern gentlemen who were placed under arrest. Now this was rather irregular. The Trent could, of course, be boarded in order to examine dispatches, and she could, in fact, have been escorted to an American port for adjudication, but nobody had the authority to take two of her passengers prisoner. To quote official documents of the day, The British government could not allow such an affront to the national honour to pass without due reparation. So they sent an ultimatum to the American government, backed up by troops sent to Canada and Newfoundland, it almost precipitated a war, and it did precipitate our hero, McCrae, into the most chaotic fifty hours of his life, as he packed his belongings and scurried around to see what he could discover about his destination, Newfoundland, about which he knew very little. "'Newfoundland?' said one of his friends. "'Ah, to be sure, know all about it. Fish, you know. Tremendous place for salt fish.' "'Newfoundland?' said another. "'Oh, yes, certainly. Know it very well. Banks, you know. Tremendous banks of mud and awful fogs. Take care of yourself. Cold, coughs, bronchitis, eh?' A third friend said, "'Newfoundland? Never heard anything about it, except they cook everything in cod liver oil. Rather not go there myself.' Finally, McRae went to a well-known chart and map shop. "'Newfoundland?' said the shopman. "'Certainly, sir. American, I think. Northern or southern? Oh!' British colony, is it? And as he searched around, all he could find was an old admiralty chart of the Grand Banks, but no information about McRae's destination. Finally, in despair, McRae remembered an officer's widow, a lady of mature years, who he dimly recalled had spoken of Newfoundland. 
He beetled off to see her, and she laughed at his pronunciation. Oh, Newfoundland? Why, yes, I remember. I was there several years. I liked it very much and was very happy there. Well, what did you do there? Do? Well, I don't think we did anything. Well, I mean, how did you amuse yourself? Oh, there were no amusements. It's quite out of that sort of thing, except letters which arrived every six weeks or so. What about roads? Oh, scarcely any. But in winter you can go everywhere in the sleighs. The food was not bad. Beef was fair, bread was good, summer was too short for vegetables, except for cabbages which grew in the ditch of the old fort. But there was plenty of salt fish, pork, wild duck, and Irish papists. Oh, I remember now. It was an awful place for wind. It blows terribly, always blowing. We were often obliged to walk out tied two and two together. So, with a stout heart, Macrae embarked from Liverpool for Queen and Country, ready to defend with his life the garrison of St. John's against all enemies, especially American. I needn't tell you that he found it a far different place than it was when the officer's widow of mature years resided there. Indeed, out of his two years in what he affectionately called Fish and Fogland, Macrae fashioned a fine tale replete with hilarious scenes. What a time he had getting to St. John's. The packet first put in at Halifax to land the soldiers who were detailed for the fort there. And as they were to lie all day at anchor, Macrae joined other passengers and got off to stretch his legs and admire the fine town of Halifax. Meanwhile, an English naval frigate happened in, and her captain, said to be rather fierce and difficult to deal with, seeing the idle Liverpool packet, immediately ordered her to sea. As a result, a number of passengers were left behind, none more anxious than Macrae, who was told he might catch up with the ship in Sydney, nearly 250 miles distant, when she put into refuel. So off he went by sleigh, headed for Cape Breton in the dead of winter, with their passengers snuggled under buffalo robes. The going was good until snow on the track dwindled to nothing, and the horse could not pull the sleigh over the bare ground. Out they got, walking to warm up their feet until they came to a trestle bridge covered with slippery ice. The horses made it across, but Macrae and another man were immediately down on their backs, unable to stand or move. Picture the scene, then, as the two supine passengers were towed and dragged across the ice, bumping, sliding, laughing by those with sparbles on their boots. More than half frozen, they eventually reached Sydney, where Macrae rejoined his ship and two days later arrived in St. John's. The harbour of St. John's was all frozen over, looking dull and opaque, save where round the ship it cracked like a frozen mirror. There was no sign of movement on the frozen land except for one man on a wharf, who beat his arms over his chest for warmth, and looked with complete disinterest at the Liverpool packet. At last the noon gun boomed, and a little iron-sheathed vessel bustled out to pick up Macrae and the other soldiers. There was now quite a crowd of big-limbed loafers and apple-cheeked damsels gathered around to see the new soldiers come ashore, and to watch as each man made a jump onto the pier, slip, slide, stagger, and then go heels up, helpless on the icy ground. And so it was all the way up to the garrison, until bruised and weary they reached the building, full of bare, empty, cold rooms. The wind rose and whirled snow around the corners, and the daylight faded as Macrae followed his servant to the room assigned him. 
a dome-like chamber with a vaulted ceiling, dimly lit by a candle, upon whose miserable combustion the riotous breezes entered freely by many holes and chinks, he wrote. His servant, tugging at the frozen cords of a valise, paused to say, "'I can't make head nor tile of this stove, sir. It's awful.' Now this stove was a Yankee contrivance called a Franklin, in front of which they were alternately roasted and frozen. The smell of sulphur and heated iron was beyond endurance, and when the blower was off, out went the fire in ten minutes. When the blower was on, the furnace exhausted their fuel at a terrible rate. Fussing with the stove until he was black as tar, McRae went round the room and chinked up all the cracks he could find with paper, dirty linen, and a cement of mutton lard. It was not a very edifying introduction to life in Newfoundland, and while feeling sorry for himself, he was visited by an old friend with whom he'd once served on the other side of the world. Hmm, said he, uh, these quarters are not in very good order, I can see. I should be most happy to repair, but money's the thing, you see. They've screwed and tightened things down to the very last turn. They're afraid to ask Parliament for money for the colonies. Then, whisking the suffering Lieutenant Colonel McRae off to his own house, a much better picture emerged. A pleasant bright hall with a staircase running spirally round to meet a gallery upstairs, while down the stairs came little girls in white muslin dresses, bare necks, and golden curls. In the living room, creamy white walls, pictures, flowers in blossom, stands in odd corners spangled with goblets and knick-knacks. And what do you think they had for dinner in this country where nothing was edible but codfish? Palestine soup made of rich cream and Jerusalem artichokes, a pair of roasted fowls, plump and tender, and a chop smoked to succulent flavor, and then followed a boiled leg of mutton, French beans, mashed potatoes, and grouse pie with kidneys and mushrooms, wrote McRae. Ye gods, what a perfume rose to the nostrils of a hungry man when the lid of the pie was lifted. Rounding off the meal, gooseberry tart with clotted cream, fig pudding, jelly, tropical fruit from Puerto Rico, Cuba, and Spain, and tipsy cake, sponge cake soaked in sherry and brandy, and then a stroll in the cold along Water Street. On one side, McRae notes, are the better sorts of shops, which sell an omnium gatherum of most of the necessaries and rubbish of civilized life, where one might purchase a crepe garnet, a chimney pot, a wedding ring, and a bottle of Radway's Ready Relief. On the other side of the streets, the shops dispose of but six articles, old crockery, apples, lucifers, herrings, stale buns, and a rum, the greatest of these. So on one side of the street, mercantile emporia, on the other, speaking generally, grog shops. McRae relates at length the last duel fought in St. John's in 1826, he calls it the last, so there must have been others. However, though I have found accounts of disgraceful quarrels between hot-tempered politicians around the island, quarrels that properly could have been settled at sword point, so grievous were they, I have been able to find no tale so fine as McRae's. Now, in those days, before steam rapidly shuffled mankind together and rubbed off the sharp edges of our human vices— Card-playing was much more of a business than pastime. Men played cards from early morning to early next morning, winter and summer, spring and fall, and only big stakes could keep up excitement for that long. 
Players would stake seal pelts and a cantle of cod on a rubber, and many a good ship with its costly cargo changed hands nightly on the turn of a card. At the first whist party he attended, Macrae met a man who had landed from Ireland in an old pair of corduroys with half a crown in his pocket and carved his fortune out of pure luck. He won at three-card loo a lot of cask staves and set up as a cooper, and then he won several tons of seal oil to fill the casks. His next prize was a schooner which he sent to the seal fishery, and she brought back a thumping load. Macrae was told that he staked that against the building yard, won it, and played again for a parcel of oil vats and won these, and he kept on till he made a hundred thousand pounds and all the loose cash in the colony. And now he fills the highest posts in the government with great credit. So you see, card-playing was something of a serious occupation in St. John's in the good old days, when men staggering home half-slewed with rum, dressed in the coarsest homespuns that you wouldn't give away, were worth a hundred thousand pounds, but couldn't sign their names. And add in the lust of gambling, love, hate, and jealousy, and you have a pretty fair background for the tale Macrae told of the duel long ago. Just where a little stream flowed into Kidividi by a rustic bridge was a small cottage where the daughter of the house was particularly pretty, shy, and gentle. Two young soldiers, one a captain, the other a lieutenant, had both fallen abysmally in love with her. Whether from lack of opportunity or from indecision, the girl seems not to have favored one over the other, and a fierce jealousy developed between the once bosom friends. One spring evening they met with others for a game of cards. A cheerful fire burned in the grate, and in front of it was drawn a large table, covered with an old red cloth, on which scattered the greasy cards played so many times before. Flinging down their silver, the party got down to Old Irish Loo, which, when played by gentlemen, was the safest, liveliest, and most sociable game in existence. At first they all enjoyed themselves, but then the young lieutenant got so quarrelsome and awkward that most of the others dropped out. Since the captain was dealer, by the rules he had to stay in. Cards were drawn and the captain won. As he was about to take the pool, the lieutenant said, I'm not lewd. He cheated. Yes, he did. He took the king from the bottom of the pack. I saw it. And he grabbed up the pool, and then seizing his glass, he hurled the hot contents into the captain's face. Quietly, the captain wiped his face, reached for his hat, and left the room. And as he did so, the lieutenant dashed towards him and, completely beside himself with anger, aimed a kick at the captain. Now, in those days, an apology was a rare thing to offer or accept. Yet the captain, for all his provocation, told his friends that he would be satisfied with an apology. For thinking of the girl they both loved, he wanted no publicity. Oh, well, said one friend, you do as you please, but when a man insults you, then kicks you, isn't it a bit too late for apologies? There was nothing for it, then, but to send a challenge, arrange seconds, and meet in combat. About a mile from the hill, on which the cathedral so proudly stood, was a deep and sheltered ravine, hidden by overhanging trees and carpeted by the dead leaves of a hundred summers. Dueling was frowned upon, so it was here that the captain stood, quiet and calm in the early morning sun, facing the still angry lieutenant. The seconds took pistols and handled them to the duelists. 
His second, a doctor, whispered to the captain, "'I'll tell you again. You have but one chance for your life. Fire quick. He's a dead shot, and if he misses you once, he won't a second time.' "'Well, I shan't fire,' came the reply. "'He's a widow's son.' The signal given, the lieutenant fired and missed, the bullet just grazing the captain's collar as he raised his weapon and fired into the air. "'Load again, I say, load again!' shouted the angry lieutenant. Wishing to end the matter, the captain expressed himself satisfied, his honour vindicated. But they argued until he gave in, and the pistols were again loaded. Again his second whispered to the captain, "'I tell you, unless you wing him first, you're a dead man!' "'Ready! Fire!' came the command. The captain, who had shot into the air, now aimed to wing his adversary, but at that very moment the lieutenant jumped into the air, discharging his gun wildly, and was shot dead through the heart. Horror descended upon the group as they stared silently at the body of the impetuous young lieutenant, until the doctor said hoarsely, "'Oh, terrible, terrible! Yes, I acquit you, Captain, I do from my soul. You fired that time to save your life, and now we have to think of ourselves.' Furtively, they covered the corpse and crept away, hoping not to be seen. The doctor went immediately to Fort Townsend and reported an accident, a body lying in a little hollow just outside town. Soldiers investigated and returned, gently carrying the body of their comrade through the streets of St. John's. The fiction of an accident, of course, could not long stand, and even as the body passed bystanders watching the grim procession, the news spread that this man had been shot by a comrade, the man who had called out to his friend for some petty insult and then shot him through the heart. This version of the event, like so many half-truths, incensed the crowd, and they yelled for revenge for what they called murder. Had the dead man been winged, or if the duel had been harmless, no one would have thought much about it, or would merely have considered the combatants romantic young fools. But this was different. Soon could be heard the muffled drums and the sound of the dead march as the funeral cortege wound down Garrison Hill to the old churchyard. The crowd that gathered were not friends. The dead man had few, but frightened citizens, sobered by sudden uncompromising death. And then the other side of the story began to circulate, and the sympathy and pity of the crowd veered to the unfortunate captain. Now the captain and the doctor were brought before court for the crime of willful murder. The trial, said McRae, was marred by the bias of the presiding judge, who, in spite of the mitigating circumstances, summed up the case in virulent terms. McRae relates that having bidden the jury to retire to consider their verdict, the judge conspicuously turned the pages of the great law book ready to pronounce the death sentence. The crowded courthouse waited in unbearable silence. This was something beyond the ordinary course of law in Newfoundland. This was something which bore on every man assembled. At last the jury returned. "'How say you?' asked the clerk. Are the prisoners at the bar guilty or not? Guilty, but without malice, came the answer. Down came the judge's hand, the desk shivering under the blow, even his wig trembling in anger. What verdict is that? Who asked you to give anything but guilty or not guilty? Did you listen when I laid down what shooting a man in cold blood was? And then he thundered, Go back to your room and find a verdict in accordance with the law, or I'll keep you there until you do. The prisoner's counsel, a distinguished and clever man, then rose and said quietly, 
I must ask, my lord, that you record the verdict just given by the jury. Certainly not. It's no verdict at all. I have refused it. I beg your lordship's pardon, but it is a verdict. Guilty without malice is a verdict of not guilty of murder, which requires malice or a forethought. It's not possible now for the jury to bring in a verdict of guilty, which is as obvious to you and me as it was to the jurymen, and a second verdict brought after a few minutes' deliberation was not guilty. Never was there a more popular verdict. The crowd poured into the courtroom, clear up to the dock, and lifting the doctor and the captain on willing shoulders, they brought them triumphantly outside, up Garrison Hill, and back to Fort Townsend through a cheering mob. That night, it's said, the town celebrated in full libations of rum punch and whiskey toddy. Well, McCrae goes on to describe in detail his time in St. John's. Little discipline, no tangible enemy to fight, very little social life, and a vast deal of boredom. The war with the United States over the Trent never did materialize, and at last came the order to move on. McCrae's account ends as one morning in June he stood on the steamer deck, gazing up to the noble cliffs as she passed through the narrows out to sea, and the purple cliffs of fish and fogland passed forever out of sight. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late Ella Manuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of Ella Manuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. In the next episode, Ella Manuel revisits northeastern Newfoundland of the mid-1800s through the eyes of missionary Julian Morton. <laughs> <laughs>